Acts chapter number 2, verses 41 through 47. The Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Amen. It's been said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And... I can tell you that is absolutely true from a church standpoint. I don't care where you are in the Christian church today across the United States. If there is a church that is doing something differently and they are attracting attention for it, I can promise you there will be imitation. There will be imitation because all of us constantly, whether it's in the church realm, family realm, work realm, whether it's in our sports leagues, wherever it is, where there is something that appears to be working, there will be people who seek to copy it. In fact, I uh, know of uh, a pastor I love and respect very much, and he uh, has attended each year what is simply called an ideas conference. And at this ideas conference, there are just pastors throwing out ideas uh, from the general conservative Christian world that people can go and try to adopt and apply uh, in their own churches. It's this desire for creativity, for things that we can imitate if there are ways in which we are hoping to have similar results. Now, I say this as just a natural human tendency because when we go to Acts chapter 2, we see in these few verses that Kevin read for us, one of the most profound times in all of Christian history. I want you to just think about what is described for us here in Acts chapter 2 about what that church was like. What would you have experienced attending this church? Let's go over some of the characteristics of that early church, shall we? You have the leadership of the church. Who are they? The people who knew Jesus Christ personally and received teaching directly from him. That, I don't know about you, but that would check the box for me of good Bible teacher. Of someone with credibility. I saw Jesus alive. What else did they have? Prodigious growth. On one day, about 3,000 people get saved and enter the church. 3,000. This sanctuary seats about 500 people if we were packed to the gills. Imagine six times that coming into the church in one day. 
And not only that, we read in verse 47 here that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The idea of the Greek here is actually those who were being saved. In other words, what it's saying is every single day it was as if people were being added to the church. Now you think about that prodigious growth and you think, okay, wonderful Christian leadership and doctrinal, doctrinally sound teaching prodigious, explosive, multiplying growth. What else? Remarkable unity. Notice what scripture says here in verse 41. There were added unto them about 3,000 souls and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. These were people that did not just come in for a month or two and then spread out and say, I don't know if this is for me. These were people that continued steadfastly. In other words, they were not just people who were being evangelized. They were truly being discipled. They had an incredible unity of the apostles' doctrine. That's their teaching. Their fellowship. That is their Christian unity with one another. In breaking of bread, I think what's likely is being referred to here as the Lord's Supper. They were continually engaging in this ordinance that Jesus gave us of the Lord's Supper. And in prayers, in public prayer, not private prayer. In public corporate prayer. Look at the effect they were having on the community. Verse 43 says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. God's miraculous power was so evident that the, the community at Jerusalem was extremely reverent about what was going on. You look around in this community, and most people couldn't care less what the Christians are doing. They're just not significant in their lives. Not so in first century Jerusalem. Fear came upon every soul like God's doing something there. And not just that, verse 44 said, they all that believed were together and had all things common. They shared everything, not by any compulsion. It was entirely voluntary. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, why do I start with imitation being the greatest form of flattery? Because my question here is to note at what Scripture says of verse 46. Notice this practice. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house in their daily fellowship meals, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. I want you to notice those two things. Continuing daily in the temple, corporate gathering, and continuing daily in breaking bread from house to house. Community gathering. Corporate gathering, community gathering. And I want to ask us tonight, is that something that the church of God in every age is to imitate? Is that something that should characterize straight gate church? Corporate worship, community fellowship. And that is, I hope, what we'll get an answer to by the end of this message. The title of the message tonight is Corporate Worship and Communal Fellowship. Corporate Worship and Communal 
fellowship. The first thing I want to focus on together tonight is the simplicity of the early church practice. The simplicity of this practice. Notice again the simplicity of continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Now, I don't know that Luke is saying here, or the Holy Spirit is intending us to take, that the church was meeting every day, the entire church. If you can imagine 3,000 plus people, more were being added every day, crowding the temple courts, it it boggles the mind a little bit to think that 3,000 people were meeting every single day in the temple. I can't say that it's not, it wasn't like this. It seems a little more likely to me that people were, that the apostles were there every day teaching and that they were gathering as many days a week as they could. Maybe not all 3,000 were meeting for a scheduled service every day. But nonetheless, the apostles were there every day teaching in the porch of the temple. We know they were gathered there in Solomon's porch. Scripture tells us later in this book of Acts. So I don't know whether it means truly scheduled services every day, but they were consistently meeting for corporate worship. And we know what that included. We see here in verse number 42, there was doctrine and there was fellowship. So the apostles were teaching the word of God consistently and they were regularly in public worship and public prayer. Now, I want us to see again just the basic simplicity of this practice. They were meeting in public together and they were meeting in private together. They were meeting in the temple surrounded by anyone who would come and they were meeting in small groups in houses from house to house. In other words, it wasn't just meeting at one person's house. They were going from house to house to house to house. It was a rotating communal fellowship. Now let's start with public worship. Can we say that it is God's direction for Christians today to be meeting in corporate worship regularly? Would we agree with that or disagree with that? Of course we would agree with that. And we know this scripturally because Hebrews 10.25 commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Even in that day and age, there were people who were avoiding the public corporate worship. And the author of Hebrews says, not you. Not you. You attend to the regular assembling of yourselves together. Jesus himself was prophesying of his people meeting together. In Matthew 19, he says, When two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And in fact, that context is not about prayer meetings as we often think of it as. What is the context of Jesus saying, When two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst? Church discipline. Church discipline. Someone has been reproved, rebuked over their sin, and they have not repented. Jesus says, bring another brother or sister along, and they still do not repent. And then what do you do? You bring it to the church. And the church acts with one voice. This is, again, referring to a public assembly of God's people at which this practice of church discipline would be brought to bear. And in fact, in Acts chapter 20, we know that this became a regular practice of the church and continued to be because Acts 20 tells us, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. 
So not only was there a corporate worship, it was a regular corporate worship that was identifiable when? On the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. So we know that in this corporate worship, there was something remarkable about just the steadfast order of their public meeting. And then we see their private meeting, breaking bread from house to house. Now let's just pause there. What would be your first order of business if 3,000 people were to come into Straight Gate Church this week and profess faith and be baptized? Probably sign up about five new elders. That would probably be one of the first orders of business. No, what do we see honestly in, in, in their Simplicity. I want us to notice something. There is a sense in our church culture that our churches to grow need to be really busy and need to be really programmatic. We have programs for this group of people and that group of people and that group of people and we reach this ministry over here and we've got about 12 different ministries that we are advertising and saying, do you want to see this ministry? We have a ministry for every single person under the sun. Now, I don't know what any specific ministries they had here in Acts chapter 2 because the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to tell us. The Holy Spirit said they did these two things. They met corporately and they met privately. What simplicity of worship are you looking for in your church culture? Is this simplicity good enough for you to say God's people meet regularly? They meet regularly in public. They meet regularly in private. They break bread together. They, st- they continue in doctrine together. They continue in public corporate prayer together. They continue in fellowship together. And frankly, that simplicity is good enough. Again, I'm not speaking against ways that we can minister to creatively to different groups of people. I'm not speaking against churches who have programs and who have more organized or structured methods of ministry. I'm simply making the point that we shouldn't expect that these things are necessary or essential to the spiritual flourishing of a family of God, of a local church of believers, because where the spirit is, there can be incredible growth in even the most simple forms of practice, continuing regularly in public worship, continuing regularly in communal fellowship. So first of all, again, just bookmark the simplicity of the practice that they had. But secondly, notice the spirituality of this practice. The spirituality of this practice. I want us to ask, why were these early church, these early Christians so devoted to public worship that they would be meeting daily for public worship and regularly, daily, consistently meeting in individual houses for meals together. What explains that? One, they had to be united in a purpose They had to be united in a purpose. What draws organizations together? Why is it that these massive Fortune 500 companies put out a mission statement, a purpose statement? This company is about X. Why is it that when you interview for a job at these companies, they say, this is who we are and what we do and what sets us apart? 
because they recognize that in order to have a cohesive organization, one needs a common purpose. And whether you're talking about an, a Fortune 500 company, whether you're talking about a sports team that is all committed to a common purpose above all else, whether you're talking about a family that has an understanding of their calling as a family about what God has directed them to do, or as a church, what is our mission? What is our goal? Jesus gave his disciples that goal when he says, your common purpose is to go into all the world and spread the gospel to every creature. That is your common purpose. And here, these early Christians were united in what? They were united in doctrine. They weren't at each other's throats about what God's truth was. They were united in fellowship. They knew that this fellowship of God's people had a necessary purpose to them. Not only that, they were united in breaking of bread, in the ordinances that God had given them as a local church, both publicly and privately. Um, uh, it seems, in fact, from this that they were actually meeting in houses for the Lord's Supper. Individual houses they were in, engaging in this ordinance and then also in the necessity of corporate prayer. They were united in purpose. Notice also, they were united in their passion. You say, where do you get this? Go down, if you will, to scripture telling us they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. What is scripture telling us about the passion that they had. Well, we see in this idea of their connection together, of their unity together. Scripture uses a very interesting Greek word together for their unity, for their togetherness. It is a word, two Greek words that are put together. And it means literally to rush along. That's one Greek word. To rush along like a river just overflowing its banks. Have a current, a, a current moving together. And to rush along together. Actually, it's a, almost a musical picture. If you hear a fugue by J.S. Bach, you hear two lines that just appear to be chasing to get to, get to each other. The music is just rushing along together, and yet it's all in harmony, and it's all it's designed toward a common purpose. And what I think the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that in their unity, they were rushing along together toward an end. Friends, we cannot miss this about what is essential to our unity together as a church body, it has to be a central passion for Jesus Christ and a love for him. We can be united in structure. We can be united in organization. We can be united in our ministry. We can be united in all kinds of things. But unless we are united with a common love for Jesus Christ that we are pressing toward the mark of the high prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus... We're not going to have ultimate unity like this church did. It is very easy for a church to be administratively and structurally alive and spiritually dead. When people are not united by a common passion and for Jesus Christ and a desire to make him known. And what would be very tragic is if we were to grow in our ability to be structurally sound, if you will, and administratively on top of the ball, and what we missed ultimately was the most important thing, like that church at Ephesus, they had left their first love. We will never succeed 
in the unity that God intends us to do. This goal that they had of meeting corporately in prayer, continuing together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers was because they had a central passion of their lives that was ruling and that was dominating them. Again, we understood this morning from Hebrews chapter 11 that at the root of faith is not a mental ascent. It is the reality of heart that faith itself brings into our life. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It substantiates what is hoped for. It is the evidence. It is the proof. It proves what I cannot see. Faith is not simply what I think. Faith is what I know because God has revealed it to me in faith. As we said this morning, faith is that which brings the reality of things that I cannot see to my own consciousness, which tells me that if this is a church that is to walk in faith, there will be a reality, a central reality that Jesus Christ is alive and that he is coming again and that he has called and raised us up to a a specific purpose. And if we don't have that, it doesn't matter how much other unity we have, we are going to miss out on ultimately what is most essential. So notice they were united in purpose. They were united in passion. And above all these things, they were united in a person. The spirit of God had revived them. It had brought them to life in being born again. They were walking in the spirit. We see the promise of the spirit being fulfilled in them. And I want us to see the evidence of the spirit working in them. Will you look with me here again at verse number 46? Verse 46 says, they continuing daily with one accord. There's an emphasis on the unity of the spirit. They uh, they, uh, continue daily with one accord. That passion rising together in them. And breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat. Notice this. They ate their meat. They, They had their daily meals with gladness and singleness of heart. What does that look like? Why does scripture say they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart? It was like every time they gathered around the table, they were glad, they were joyful. Every time they gathered around the the, the table, they had a singleness of heart. I love this word. This word in our our Greek um, Bible has the idea of literally, it's it's a very interesting idea. The Greek word literally is Two words, a negation, no, stone that you'd stub your toe on. That's the idea, that's the picture. These people had a singleness of heart that was as if they weren't stubbing their toe on anything internally. Now if you think about that picture, you realize how powerful it is. Because what causes my discontentment? A double-minded heart. A heart that's stubbing my toe on what I don't have. A heart that's stubbing my toe on my broken relationships. A heart that's stubbing my toe on the things that I don't have and that I'm lacking. Not these people. They said, am I sitting down to food? I'm grateful. I'm single-minded. God is at work. And this overflows in verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Can you imagine what an effect these single-minded, grateful people in revival would have had on everyone around them? Friends, don't get this wrong. Jesus said that we should expect persecution. But that is not at all inconsistent with what Scripture says here, that these revived people had favor with everyone. 
Sometimes we get persecuted because we're just nasty or mean-spirited people, and then we think we're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And it's exactly the opposite. In fact, we need to remember that one of the causes, the biggest cause of persecution across the book of Acts was, was not the ordinary common people. The ordinary common people loved Jesus. They flocked to him to hear him. The ordinary common people had favor. The, the church had favor with them. Who was the cause of persecution throughout the church age? It was the religious leaders. It was some of the politicians. They were the ones who stirred up the people. In other words, I, don't, I, I, I really do believe that in our Christian lives, there should be such a simplicity and such a joy and such a love and beneficence that just flows out from us to others that we should have favor generally with the people. They should look at us and say, uh, we don't really understand what you believe, but I can't really speak against your character. But at the same time, we should expect that we're going to receive persecution from those who have incentive to forbid us, religious leaders, political leaders, others who wish to turn those who see our good testimony and turn it to our disadvantage. I just note that, that, we, that these people in revival, even their neighbors recognize something different is going on. These people are different. These people are special in the way that they are relating to life. And that's where I want to pause. These people were filled with the Spirit and they were experiencing the unity of God. And that's why I want to ask this question. Was their practice, this simple practice of meeting in corporate worship and community fellowship, was it the cause of their harmony and their unity? Or was it in effect of their harmony and unity? Was it a cause or was it an effect? You say, why is this an important question? Because imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And the question is, if it was a cause of their unity, we say, all right, let's just go and start imitating them. And we'll start having that same unity. On the other hand, if it was an effect, if it was just an overflow of the Spirit filling them already, they said, all right, let's start meeting publicly. Let's start meeting privately. Let's get to work. That means we can't just imitate their practice and expect us to receive the same results. What we should be focusing on ultimately is whether we have the Spirit of God and whether we're filled with the Spirit and then look forward to that overflow when we are walking in that same model. What do we think? I think we need to put one marker in the ground very clearly. We know absolutely that this was in effect. We know absolutely. Because only the Spirit of God can bring this kind of unity. Only the Spirit of God can make 3,000 people who just entered the church together want to be hanging out together every time they can. Only the Spirit of God can make people who had been dead in their trespasses and sins suddenly saying, whenever I have a free moment, I'm going to the temple and I'm hearing teaching. I'm hearing preaching. I'm going to corporate prayer. Only people who have been transformed by the Spirit of God can have that effect in their lives. So we should say clearly and unambiguously, this is absolutely an effect that reflected itself in the way they lived their daily lives, in seeking out corporate worship and in seeking out community fellowship. So if your immediate reaction was, of course this is an effect, I'm saying I completely agree with you. The question is this, could we also say that in any way it was a cause? 
We agree that it was an effect of being filled with the Spirit. Can we say in any way that this practice that they had of corporate worship and of community fellowship was in a cause of their continued unity? And I want to suggest tonight the answer is yes. And I want to try to prove it to you biblically. That this was not only an effect of being filled with the Spirit, but it actually was a contributor to their unity. Let me give you a few reasons, I think biblically, why we should imitate what they did. At least in this practice of corporate worship on the one hand, and of community fellowship regularly on the other hand. Here's one thing first, because scripture just calls us to it. Scripture calls us to it. 1 Timothy 3, Paul is giving to his protege, Timothy, the, the, the unchangeable requirements for an elder, for a church leader. And here is what he says a church leader must be. No ifs, ands, or buts. A church leader must be given to hospitality. And you need to understand something about that Greek word. It is one Greek word. And do you know what that word literally means? A lover of guests. Fond of guests. Here's what he's saying. Do you want to take oversight over a church body? Then you better, be, you better love to have people over. You better be fond of having people in to your home for Christian fellowship. And that's just not here. Titus 1.8, Paul says the exact same thing, doing the, saying the exact same Greek word as a requirement of the kind of elder that Titus should install in the local churches there. And it is translated a lover of hospitality. Same word, given to hospitality, same word, lover of hospitality. A lover of guests, fond of guests. Unless we think that this is only something for church leaders to exemplify. 1 Peter 4.9 uses this same word, a lover of guests, when he commands all of us to say, use hospitality without grudging. Use hospitality to one another without grudging. He is saying every one of us should be fond of guests. Now that's a challenge. That's a somewhat of a challenge to introverts, isn't it? To those of us who are very comfortable with our house being our castle and our home where we just retreat. We should ask ourselves, am I fond of guests? Am I a lover of guests in my house? And do I do it without grudging? Without complaint or murmuring in my spirit? I have to do this. I guess I should. Friend, what is the Christian calling? To be a lover of hospitality, to be given toward it, to be oriented to it. And so I think when we see this community practice, this Christian practice of corporate worship like we're doing now and community fellowship, I see elsewhere in scripture, there just being a direction, a command that we ourselves be engaged in this practice. Here's another thing I think that's a clear biblical reason why this is a scriptural basis to imitate. It's because Jesus exemplified it. Our Lord, when he came to earth, was the one who was known in meeting in people's houses. Whose houses was Jesus known for meeting in? 
Who did he get in trouble with the religious leaders for meeting in? Whose houses? Sinners. Tim, as usual, is anticipating where I'm going. He mentions Zacchaeus. Turn over to Luke chapter 19, will you? Luke chapter 19. I want us, I want us to see this together. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 19, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. To be chief among the publicans meant that you were effectively a really, really good thief. To become rich as a publican meant that you were really a good thief. Because they made their money effectively by robbing the people blind. That's why they were so hated. They were Jews that aligned themselves with the Romans and were tax collectors who, who got rich on the side off the Jews' money. They were traitors. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press because he was little of stature. Oh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I love, I love that old children's song. And he ran before and climbed up into, into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. I want you to put yourself in that position. Jesus comes in and he sees this guy up in a tree and he says, hey, I'm coming over, so go make me a meal. You say, that doesn't sound very polite. How would you have responded? Well, we know as Zacchaeus responded, he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. They couldn't believe that he was going into his house. Look what happens in his house. And Zacchaeus stood clearly at dinner and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Friends, you can look throughout your Gospels, and you could just highlight every time Jesus is at someone's house, he went to Levi's house, Matthew's house, after, he, after Matthew turned and started following him. He went to Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house for a feast. Wherever Jesus was going, he was going into someone's house, and really, they were entertaining him, but in a real greater sense, he was entertaining them. He was acting hospitably to them. In fact, when we think about the communal meal that Jesus has given us, the Lord's Supper that we'll participate in tonight, isn't it interesting that that indeed was a meal, a Passover meal, something to be shared in their upper room when they were gathered together in a family-style setting. We should ask ourselves, why? Why was Jesus so centered, so focused on not just teaching in synagogues, not just teaching in corporate worship, but entering people's front doors, coming into their house, and meeting with them privately? And this was not just Jesus, Paul himself. Do you remember in Acts chapter 20? He is meeting with the Ephesian elders where he had spent a couple years of his life. He was never going to see them again. He was saying goodbye to them. And in Acts chapter 20, he met with the elders of the church at Ephesus. And this was what he said. I kept back nothing profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. 
What did Paul do? He taught publicly like we're doing right now. And what did he also do? He went house to house. He met people in their houses. And he taught them there too. And he didn't hold back anything that was profitable from them. You see, how else are we to view scripture other than to saying there are two pillars to our Christian experience. One is corporate worship that we're doing right now. What is another one? Community fellowship from house to house, breaking bread together and encouraging one another in the Lord. We can't be missing either one of them. Because the Bible tells us that we should be engaged in this. Scripture shows us that Jesus himself came to give us an example of this kind of ministry. And not only that, this is a picture of God for us in the gospel. Do you remember in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is telling, someone says to Jesus, Blessed are those that shall eat in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I've got a story to tell you. There was a certain rich man that showed if that was going to throw a great feast. And he went and invited his friends. And they all said, I can, I can, I can, I can. And what is, what is God's response in that parable? He says, you go into the highways and hedges and you compel people to come in because I'm going to have a big party in my house. What's the picture? The kingdom of God. Do you know what the story of the gospel is? It is of people who have been banished from God's house because of their rebellion and sin against him. And now in the gospel, God invites us to have hospitality with him eternally in the new city of Jerusalem and to feast with us forever. He says, you come in. You come into my house and we are going to have fellowship forever. This is a picture and we should not and we indeed dare not miss it. So again, I really do believe here that we cannot just imitate the practice of the early church and expect that automatically we're going to be spirit-filled. No. But I do believe that for spirit-filled Christians, we should set this as a priority that we're not just going to meet in, in corporate worship, but we are intentionally and creatively going to direct ourselves to open our houses for the breaking of bread and the private fellowship that we saw in Acts chapter 2, that we saw in the example of Jesus Christ, and we see commanded for us in the epistles even for our day and, age. and the question I want to I close with is why is this powerful? Why is it important that churches need to be places where people are meeting communally as well as corporately? And I want to close here thirdly with the significance of this practice. The significance of this practice. The first thing I think that is important for us to recognize is what I'll call individuality. Individuality. Why is it significant that we meet and break bread together from house to house? One thing is individuality. I want you to think about Jesus' example. Jesus was a corporate teacher. Jesus went and proclaimed the gospel to large crowds and they listened to him. Now what did Jesus consistently, what format did he consistently use to preach? What mode of speaking? He spoke to them in parables I want you to listen to Mark 4 Jesus scripture tells us but without a parable spake he not unto them and when they were alone he expounded all things to his disciples you hear that he speaks corporately to all of them in parables and then when they are alone together he teaches them 
all things. He expounds everything to them. Listen to Matthew 13. Jesus has been preaching. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Preaching publicly, expounding privately. Friends, do you know how powerful this is? When I am preaching, one of the things I am struck by in our morning services is the incredible diversity of people that I am attempting to proclaim the gospel of Christ to. I look at some of you who have been in the Lord longer than I have been alive, and the depth of your walk with the Lord and knowledge of the scripture is truly inspiring to me. And then I am looking at perhaps the back of some, of some teenager's head who has, not, who has been comatose for at least 20 minutes. And I'm just struck by what a profound challenge this is to try to proclaim the gospel to people who are at entirely different areas, not just of spiritual maturity, but of even spiritual interest. And do you know what I realize? Not everyone is going to get everything. And you see me, you know sometimes when I'm trying to just simply make it as simple and bring an illustration down as simply as I can make it. And I appreciate your patience in that sometimes because you know what I'm trying to do. But there are other times where simply there is just not going to be something for everyone to reach at all times. Do you know what that requires? Individuality. It requires some of us to be individually in homes and breaking down the word of God in a way more simple than even necessarily I can always do when I am standing up here and preaching. We need that. And Jesus' example shows us that there is something about the comfort of a home in which individual Bible exposition and teaching can be extraordinarily effective. I want to call out something, and I would encourage you to talk to them about this. I've been very encouraged by this. Um, I, I've been aware that um, Libby and Alicia have been doing a Bible study in some homes, in a home of, of a mother in our community, and other uh, mothers have joined them in this. And you would not believe just the testimonies I've heard from them about the work of God that's been going on here by the simple, basic exposition and teaching of God's word, the discussion that is going on among them, and the openness that these people who maybe have not come to our church in some time, if ever, are being willing to open up and engage with God's word. Friends, I can tell you that kind of openness would not happen in these church doors. Put yourself in the position of someone in this community who is coming into our church with the massive cultural differences that are there from the very moment they step in and ask yourself, if that were you, how comfortable would you be being open, asking questions, exposing things that perhaps you're confused about or you don't know individually? And now imagine the difference when you are in your own home with someone you know and trust and are comfortable with. How open or how much more open are you going to be? You see, Jesus himself shows us that there is an individuality of teaching that can only happen in the home, in the small group, in the area where we are comfortable around those that we know. This is an incredibly powerful discipleship tool, and we just need to be aware of that and have our eyes open to that. And this individuality, I think, very importantly, leads to what I would call an authenticity. An authenticity. You know, one of the things that we struggle with in coming together in corporate worship is exactly the strength of corporate worship. Why do we come together in corporate worship? 
Why do we sing songs together? Why do we pray together? Because we want to be together. We want to have our collective voice going up to God. We are meeting together to, to, um, to say together, to speak together the truths that we believe. But friends, we're individuals. And we're at different places in our Christian life. And we have different struggles and we have different burdens that we're bearing and different sins that we're fighting against. And all of a, of, of a difference that is very difficult in a corporate worship to truly grapple with. And that's why when we come into our homes, when we break bread together around the most common circumstances of life, where at least I have found we can be the most engaged with one another and be the most real, be the most authentic about where we are and where we need the encouragement of the body of Christ. It's been kind of neat for me um, recently over the last year or so in Kelvin Todd's Bible study for young adult men. We have been hosting that at our house, uh, Tabitha and I at our house. And I don't participate in that Bible study. I really let them pursue it. But just every Monday night, they're showing up at our house and I got to tell you, it's really interesting because I'll tell you, when, they, when these guys are coming over, they see the Magnuson house for what it is. They walk in and there's a mess on the floor. They walk in and we're not done with dinner yet. They walk in and we're in the middle of Bible time. They walk in and the kids are going crazy around or we're trying to herd them together to get the dishes cleaned up. And I've got to tell you, there's something powerful about the authenticity of saying, this is just, we're just living life. We're, we're inviting you to come in as we live life together. And even in just those more informal times, I found wonderful conversation, whether it's Levi coming a little bit early and just being able to check in and see how he's doing, or maybe Kelvin Todd staying a little bit later. These times in a Bible study that I'm not even participating in, we get benefit from by hosting this and allowing space for this kind of small group breaking bread from house to house to happen. We simply are just more authentic. We are more naturally authentic and more open with one another when we are in each other's houses. And here's the third thing, not just individuality, not just authenticity, but what I'd call visibility. Visibility. I want you to notice here that scripture says they were breaking their bread from house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. I've told you before about our neighbors who have been such a, a neat testimony and encouragement to us. These dear Christian folks younger than us who are uh, just wonderfully spiritual people and they have engaged having small groups over at their house consistently every week. And you would not believe, I just, I just have to think about what the message that sends to the community, to our neighborhood, when every single week, maybe twice a week, there are cars just lined up all around their house. All, they fill up, they almost fill up the block as cars are parking, you know, in front of our yard and in front of someone else's yard. And they're out in the backyard they're testifying together. They're studying scripture. They've got a Bible out. They're doing, they're just having time together. What do you think the world looks at their neighbors who don't know anything about that kind of community, about anything, that kind of fellowship? What do you think they think when they look at, the, at these neighbors? They say something's going on that's different there. Why do you think it is, in my view, that there was such a different favor among the people that the church had? Because they were visible. You can't hide people going house to house consistently and this kind of engagement in hospitality and in loving having guests at our house. This is just a way that we testify to the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our own lives. And that's why there's something special 
about not just meeting corporately in worship, but meeting communally in fellowship. And this is where I really want to challenge us as a church body. I think if anyone looked at Straightgate Church, they would say, you know, Straightgate, you're doing pretty well in corporate worship. You're meeting a lot. You're meeting for corporate worship. You're meeting for corporate prayer. You're together in one place. But I wonder what they would say if they looked at us honestly and say, how are you doing in communal fellowship? How are you doing in breaking bread from house to house? How are you at disciple making in houses, your own and others? How often are you leaving the comfort of your house to go engage with other people? How often are you opening your front door to be a lover of guests, to be fond of them in the way that scripture has called us to? How would we be doing on that plank of our Christian calling and of our church life together? My sense is that this summer, where maybe God isn't calling us to meet corporately for another hour on a Sunday morning, I think he may be calling us for us to expand our horizons and to step out of our comfort zone in how much our front door is open this upcoming summer. How much our corporate meeting is supplemented by our community gathering in the same example that we see in this early church. I just want to close with three very small encouragements to all of us at what this might look like and what this might require. The first is this. We need to adjust our expectations. We need to adjust our expectations. You say, what do you mean? It's sometimes tempting to look at Acts chapter 2 and say, you know what? If we're not meeting corporately for worship every day and we're not meeting every day or nearly every day for community gathering, breaking bread from house to house, we're not spirit-filled because that's what happened there. That would be the wrong way to look at it. In fact, we know that the church didn't continue meeting day after day because we know that the first day of the week was the day when they met for worship in Acts chapter 20. We know there was a, a structure and a rhythm and an order that prevailed in that church. It doesn't mean those churches weren't spirit-filled. I think this practice is something that was God had especially for them to disciple and train 3,000 people very quickly. New believers from all different places. They needed this kind of engagement in order to live life and lay the foundation for the early church. As just another example. These people had all things common. They had this radical generosity of sharing. And we don't see that other places in the scripture, that that's commanded. So we shouldn't expect it. If we're not looking exactly like they did in Acts chapter 2, we're, we can't be spirit-filled. No, adjust your expectation. That's not what I'm suggesting. But friends, I do think it would be worth suggesting for us to examine ourselves and say, when is the last time I've opened my front door? When is the last time that I have been exhibiting this kind of lover of guests that should mark our hearts and our lives? Yes, in different ways and in different seasons of life. It may be time for us to adjust our expectations about what God may be calling us to. The second is this. I'd really encourage us, if we're going to grow in this area, we have to remove formality. To remove formality. You say, what do, I mean? what do you mean by that? There is a great hindrance to hospitality, and it's formality. It's the idea that whenever guests come over to my house, my house needs to be spotless. My meal needs to be perfect. Everything needs to be in perfect harmony and order. My house needs to have the right decorations. It needs to have everything perfectly in order. 
And sometimes we call that, oh, that's just love. I just want to be selfless. I just want to have a wonderful uh, 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 home and environment for my guest. And that could be. I'm not speaking against the heart of love that wants to show something very nice to someone else. But friends, I do wonder how often that love is really, frankly, more about myself. That I will look good. Or that I don't want to be seen as being disorganized or not a good cook or not running a good place here or there. One of the ways that I think we are able to attack that is to recognize humbly that it's important to simply live life together and be open to one another. To say, you know, it's okay. If I invite someone over and my house isn't perfectly clean, they'll understand. It's okay if we come over and we have frozen pizza for dinner. I'm not saying you should have someone over and have frozen pizza. All I'm saying is if we're truly living out what God wants us to do in a kind of communal fellowship in unity, you don't need to worry about inviting me over and putting your best meal on. Because what is essential is not the meal. It's about what happens at the meal. It's about the love of Christ that we share. It's about the conversation of fellowship where we live life and talk about what is actually going on in our lives, free from the formality even of corporate worship that we're dealing with here. It's where we actually are open and authentic with, another, with one another. And that doesn't require formality. In fact, formality may indeed hinder that openness and that authenticity. So my encouragement to you is if formality and this desire for perfection is holding you back from being a lover of guests. Ask God to address that in your life such that he may give you a greater liberty there. And here's the final thing I would just encourage you as I encourage myself. Use structure. Use structure. What hinders us from hospitality? Let's just be honest. What hinders us from hospitality? We're busy. We're, a lot of times we simply say, I'm too busy for that. We should be rebuked in some regard by these early church members who said, if I have free time, I'm going to do it because I'm absolutely passionate about the things of God. But I do encourage you that there are some ways that God can direct us in this way simply by recognizing that this is a priority and I'm going to treat it as a priority. I'm going to build structures into my life that say, who would God have me to minister to? In what Ways could I connect with brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, friends, if you are open or, uh, or interested in what we've been talking about, even in what Libby and Alicia have been doing, you say, man, I would love to be in a house of someone in our, in our Minneapolis community and do a Bible study with them. Do you have any ideas for someone that we could do that? I would love to suggest that. We would love to say, you might want to check with this person. You might want to check with this person. It's in this kind of atmosphere that God is going to be at work in addition to what we're doing corporately here, in greater individuality, in greater authenticity, and in greater visibility to the world that's around us. So again, friends, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Can we expect that if we imitate the early church, we're going to be exactly like them in our fullness of the Spirit? No. No, that was an effect of a great spiritual work that was going on. But I do see in our scripture a calling for all of us to make a priority, breaking bread from house to house, opening up our homes, being willing to go to other homes, to have a greater connection and a fellowship in the body of Christ that cannot be done here inside this church building that requires, as Jesus shows us, that connection that comes in our homes. So let me encourage you. There are two legs 
to our Christian experience, corporate worship, and communal fellowship. May we grow as God wants us to in that second leg this summer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us and what it reveals to us. Father, we know that your people need to reflect your character. And we see in Jesus, we see an example that we are called to follow. And I do pray, Father, that you would just challenge and direct, point to areas in our life where we are not lovers of hospitality, where we are not given even perhaps to corporate worship. Father, would you reveal to us what underlies our need for growth? The greatest, the greatest and most important thing, Father, is for us to be in tune with your spirit, to be united in a purpose and a passion for Jesus Christ. Would you revive us and challenge us, we pray. Let's pause now. Just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what steps we should take to grow in this area.